just laughing at the beginning of the episode. All right. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and astonishing autopsy techs. I think I've used that adjective before, but we're still astonishing. Jess and Alice. This week, we will be dissecting Coroner Season 4, Episode 7, titled True Crime. And we'll be talking about true crime web series, the hyoid bone, neck dissections, and even some cults. Our true story for this episode is pretty crazy, and I'm sure some of you have heard of it because it's been in the news within the past few years. So let's get into it. We open with Jenny and her mother making floral arrangements and cleaning up at her mother's flower shop. And Jenny says that a few weeks ago she had a panic attack from a memory of her and her mother being taken away in an ambulance. And she wants to know if that was true or just something that she had made up. And then her mother dodges the question and says she doesn't want to dredge up the past. And things are better now. This is like, uh, sorry, this is like a recurring theme throughout the episode. Like, it's obviously like traditional inside the morgue fashion we're jumping in in the middle of something that we don't know anything about but jenny's talking a lot about her mental health and people are like checking in on her a lot like are you okay so something triggered her having panic attacks i don't know if it was something at work but Mm -hmm. i thought it was interesting that it's just something they talk about throughout the episode yeah so then she gets a call i'm assuming it's a work call And then we cut to a workout class in the park, and one of the women is disappointed that she won't get to go on this retreat. And then her boyfriend, who is the detective in the show, he works with Jenny, and he offers to get her the requirements to then go to this retreat. So the detective then also gets a call, and he leaves his girlfriend to go to the scene. We see Jenny at the scene on the beach, and a man has been impaled with a metal pole. Jenny says it's a right thoracic impalement, which basically means it went through his right side of the chest, and she said it it looks like it punctured the chest wall. And I don't know if that's just, like, kind of redundant. Like, she just said it it impaled him, and now it punctured him, which is, like, the same thing. I, like, I was just thinking that, too. I was like, if I say, like, if I'm telling someone, like, yeah, it impaled them, I wouldn't feel the need to also be like, and it punctured their chest wall. Be like, yeah, because it impaled them. But no, duh. <laughs> maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the verbiage has to be different. But I was just like, yeah. <laughs> when she's like, it's it impaled him on his right side and also <laughs> punctured his chest wall. I'm like, well, yeah. I would hope it did because that's what impaling is. I totally also, as soon as I saw the scene, I thought we were going to have a Vlad the Impaler episode. <laughs> And I was like, damn it, we've already talked about Vlad the Impaler. What are we going to do for the true crime? And then it's it's nothing Vlad the Impaler related. <laughs> it's not vampire related for once. I was like, why do we keep watching vampire episodes? What is with us? We already had our Halloween one. We're good. It's not vampire related. <laughs> so the doctor working with her says that there isn't as much blood as he would anticipate or expect, but there is some petechial hemorrhaging. And we've talked about petechiae before. And they're just pinpoint hemorrhaging or bleeding under the skin. They look just like like little dots all around, sometimes on your eyes, sometimes on your neck. Like, if you're, like, throwing up a lot, you can kind of get that, like, petechiae all, all around. Yeah, they're not just on decedent. Yeah. They're, like, it can happen if you, like, burst a little capillary. It happens a lot um, when mothers, like, give after birth because they're pushing so mm-hmm. hard and they break all those blood vessels. Oh, God. That's all. That sounds terrible. <laughs> so if, if you ever see that and you're concerned, yeah. don't be concerned because it goes away in like a day or two. 
Then Jenny thinks that he either like jumped or fell from the bridge above and then he punctured his lung and chest wall on the way down. <laughs> Can't forget about that chest wall. It's fully <laughs> punctured and impaled. <laughs> One of the detectives arrives at the scene and asks if they have ever heard of a true crime web series that he likes and mentions that the host of the series and his boyfriend were attacked by a man who would drug gay men, assault them, and then drive them out to remote locations to dump the bodies. Jenny then remembers the case, and the other doctor points out that the chief didn't acknowledge that there was a serial killer and called all the cases suicides. The detective, who's a fan of the web series, points out that the location where the body is now is the exact location where the bodies had been dumped years before by the serial killer. The detective goes up to the bridge to investigate, and they note the high safety railing, so it doesn't look like it could have been an accident. It's a high traffic area, so they don't know how the person wasn't seen. One detective finds a set of keys over the railing of the bridge and picks them up, and then they go to the parking lot to figure out what car the keys belong to, and it looks like the victim was living in his car. The detective thinks this supports the suicide-slash-jumper theory. If he was struggling with housing or navigating mental health issues, it would make sense. They investigate the car and find a receipt, that says he filled the car with gas last night. So the detective points out he wouldn't fill his gas tank if he was planning on killing himself. Yeah, he wouldn't take the time to fill up his gas tank if he wasn't planning on living to drive around in his car. Right, yeah. So then he theorizes that maybe he wasn't living in his car, maybe the victims were running from something. The detective, who's a fan of the web series, says that the host, Rohan, and his partner, Blake Zellick, were lucky to survive their attack. Rohan was thrown from the bridge but landed in the sand and sustained some injuries, but he survived, and his partner Blake's attack was interrupted by some kids before he could be thrown from the bridge. The other detective finds a wallet with ID in the car, and it turns out that their victim on the beach is Blake Zellick. They're taking the body back to the morgue, and Jenny asks the detective if the original killer is still in jail. Martin Lee Gaswick, the killer, died in jail before facing trial, so they potentially have a copycat killer on their hands. In the morgue, Jenny's assistant tells her that she got a call that Blake Zellick doesn't have any next of kin or emergency contact listed because he emancipated himself as a teen. He hasn't been in contact with his family in over a decade, and it seems that his partner, Rohan Arjun, and the host of the web series, is the only person they can find who can give him an ID on their victim. The other doctor offers to go talk to the partner about IDing their loved one, which he doesn't typically do, apparently, so that was a little weird. Yeah, but he kept making references. I don't know what happened to him if he went to, like, sensitivity training or something, because everybody, he was Mm -hmm. being a lot nicer to everybody, and everybody's like, are you okay? (laughs) Yeah, I got that vibe. He's trying to be, like, more buddy-buddy with the one detective. Yeah. He says he's come to realize that connecting with those who are grieving isn't a weakness. It makes you more resilient, which is something that he's come to admire in Jenny. Rohan comes in to talk to the docs and the detectives and walks with a cane since he survived the attacker years prior. The doctor offers their condolences and he says that he still cared about Blake even though they had ended their relationship. Rohan claims that Blake had survivor's guilt because Rohan had gotten worse injuries in their attack than he did, and Rohan tried to explain to Blake that they were lucky to survive, but Blake wouldn't let it go. Rohan says they drifted apart, but that they hadn't seen each other in a while, and he says it wouldn't surprise him if Blake died by suicide. He says he's been waiting for a call like this for a while. 
Another detective arrives and asks to speak to Detective McAvoy, who is questioning Rohan. He shows him one of the clips from Rohan's web series. The detective had the tech guys search Rohan's site, and he had a link up but had removed it after he considered the current circumstances. And the video is an interview with Blake Zellick, and it was recorded yesterday. They decided to bring Rohan down to the station to question him there. In the morgue, they have Blake's body on an autopsy table. The techs or docs, I don't really know these people's positions, but they're talking about Blake, and one of them says he remembers the web series interviews he was doing in the beginning after he was attacked, and Blake always looked shaken up or scared at right after the attack. And then the other morgue worker says that this killer had such an impact on their community, meaning the LGBTQ plus community, and that nobody helped them. The cops didn't listen to them, and they just had no one to turn to. And it was a really, it's a really like heartfelt, sad moment. And the other tech or doc grabs and reaches for her hand and says that they always protect each other. I'm assuming they're both members of the LGBTQ plus community, and they're kind of just like yeah. it was like a, it was an interest. It was a cool moment because they're like not cool, I guess, but they're like standing in solidarity over the body of someone who was like a victim of this attacker who like yeah. was targeting their community because they're a marginalized community and they're kind of like standing over and they're going to do right by him get answers so jenny comes in to take a look at the body and she corroborates that there is petechial hemorrhage on the body wait i just gotta say this show really portrays how accurately we dress in the morgue and how a morgue <gasps> actually looks yes should we should we give a green flag i think we should give a green flag give an extra green flag a, a little spontaneous green flag because they all had proper ppe they we love ppe on they had masks they had like poly gowns they had the and, same like, gowns, gowns on top of that yeah. i had that written down and i forgot to put it in my my script but yeah like the whole like stainless steel tables the the organ weighing thing their morgue looks really really nice i think our morgue looks really nice <laughs> our morgue is really nice too their morgue looked nice. Their morgue, I, they had more tables in their morgue, and it, they had, like, a ton more workers. Where is this? Where does... I think it takes place somewhere in Canada. I think it's Canada. Yeah, because later on, they're talking about different cases, and they're like, yeah, this was in Ontario, and this was... When they were going through the wallet, I saw Canadian money. That makes sense. You have a sharper eye than me. I was just... They were talking about... They were just, like, mentioned Canada at one point. I'm like, oh, they must be there. <laughs> <laughs> So the other doctor that was at the scene comes in and shows them an x-ray that shows that the hyoid bone is broken. So as a little refresher, the hyoid bone is the U-shaped bone in your neck that sits at the root of your tongue and it aids in swallowing and speech. So the doctor explains that the way this bone sits, which like I just said, is at the root of the tongue and it also doesn't make a joint with any other bones. So it's just suspended purely by muscle. It's the only bone in the body like that. He explains this and says that a fall from a significant height shouldn't break it, so it looks like Blake was attacked and killed before being thrown from the bridge. So it was likely that he was strangled, which is one way that the hyoid bone can be broken, and then he was thrown from the bridge. At the precinct, the detectives are questioning Rohan, and they show him the video of his interview with Blake right before he died. Rohan is talking about the night that they were attacked in the video, and Blake keeps asking to talk about something else and is clearly agitated and uncomfortable. Rohan tries to tell Blake that it helps to talk about it, which upsets Blake. He says it doesn't help to talk and that it just makes him like everyone else. Blake thinks that Rohan is just exploiting their story for profit, and Rohan admits that he was upset after Blake left the interview, so he went to his partner's house. That is his alibi to the detectives. 
He says he didn't tell them the truth at first because he panicked and he knew it looked bad that he had interviewed Blake the night before he was found dead. He says Blake was in trouble and funneling his money into something online, and he was hoping to get him to talk on the show to help him to get money and get out of his situation that he was in. Rohan says that after the attacks, they were flooded with requests for podcasts. What up? We're a podcast. (laughs) I would not exploit victims like this, though. Never. (laughs) They were flooded with requests for podcasts, documentaries, and news stories. He says that they don't know what it's like to be violated, to have your body broken, and then afterwards feel this pressure to perform. He says people would gawk at them and ask for their autograph and keep asking them what happened, telling them that they had to just like live through this trauma over and over again. Rohan says if he couldn't escape the past, he wanted to monetize it and give a voice to survivors. So that's why he started his web series. He admits to knowing that Blake wasn't in a good place when he brought him in for this interview, and he said Blake was spitting out paranoid stuff about the end of the world, glaciers melting, food shortages. Global warming. And one of the detectives points out that that's not that crazy to worry about those things because everybody nowadays is stressed about the glaciers and food shortages. And I like, I shouldn't be laughing, but I was like, yeah, I do stress about that a lot. Those are all valid concerns. But Rohan says Blake was taking it to like a next level paranoia and that he reined it in on camera. But towards the end of the interview, he really went off. And he says that a woman interrupted them before Blake could really keep going off the rails. And apparently Blake came into the studio with a woman claiming to be Blake's friend. But Rohan says that she acted more like a handler. She cut things off when things got too intense and Blake and the woman left together. The detectives tell Rohan that they are investigating Blake's death as a murder, which shocks Rohan, which, like, I thought was hilarious because they brought him into, like, they're in, like, a legit interrogation room with, like, the one-way mirror. And, like, he even said that he knew it looked bad that he had interviewed Blake the night before he died. And he's just now realizing that they're, they're suspicious of something, like... As soon as they asked, they would have asked me to come to the precinct, I would be like, oh, I'm a suspect. (laughs) Something's up. Oh, shit. They think I did something. And he's like, they're like, yeah, we're investigating this as a homicide. And he's like, what? Like, as they have, like, the lights in his face. I'm like, come on. Like, (laughs) be smarter than that. Dude. I mean, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be so judgy because this character is grieving. But I thought he would have figured out at this point that it was. He can't be grieving that much. He said he was expecting this call that his friend died. But still, that hits you when it happens. Like, sometimes you think it might. It, like, it's different when it's a hypothetical than it actually happens. Maybe that's why he wasn't thinking clearly. Or maybe he's just not the smartest. But <laughs> I thought I would have realized it was a murder investigation at this point. But I don't know. Maybe they're good detectives and they kept their secret. <laughs> and he said, Rohan says he'll do anything to help the detectives. And he said he'll give them the footage that he has to see if they can figure out who the woman that Blake was with was. At the morgue, they have all the organs laid out for the doc to look at. And I want to give a green flag here because I think I had to pause it a couple of times to really get a look at it. But I think what Jenny is looking at and holding is the neck slash tongue block and the aorta, which is something that we take out during autopsy. And they never show this in the show. So like we do, uh, people are always shocked when I tell like when they find out that we like take out the tongue yeah and like the neck oh my god our interns when they see it for the first time they're like wow your tongue is that long (laughs) yes i did it once and i i didn't realize it was the first time 
someone was seeing this and like I took it all out and it's kind of like you just got to reach your hand up from un- like you're in the neck up into their mouth through the back and you pull it out after you cut mm-hmm. and it it is shocking the first time you see it because it's just like oh there's a tongue <laughs> like, the intern was just like is that is that someone's tongue I was like yeah <laughs> but it would be particularly important to do a neck dissection in this case, especially if they suspect strangulation is involved. So the way that Jess and I would do a layered neck dissection is we cut away the muscle layer by layer that are inferior or below the hyoid bone to look to see if there's any anti-mortem hemorrhaging in the muscles that would indicate any kind of trauma. And so like we always say, we start with our Y incision. So this is like the top of the Y like your upper chest area, that flap of skin has been lifted and is basically covering your face. So like your whole throat and neck and muscles are exposed now. And we start, I'm sorry, I'm saying the the pronoun you, like we're talking. (laughs) We're not cutting you specifically. (laughs) I shouldn't. I always do that when I'm talking. I'm like, all right, let's say that you're like this. And whoever I'm talking to is like, no, let's not say that. So let's say this imaginary non-existent person has their skin flap up over their face. Uh, We cut away the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which attaches to your sternum, your clavicle, and your mastoid process, which is like behind your ear on your skull. We then cut away the omohyoid bone. So omo means shoulder. So this muscle attaches from the hyoid bone in your neck to your shoulder. Then we cut away the sternocleidomastoid muscle underneath. And that attaches to your sternum and your hyoid. I'm sure you're seeing a pattern here. Everything's named for where it attaches. And then finally, we cut away the last layer of muscle, which is the sternothyroid muscle, which attaches to the sternum and the thyroid. So then after all that muscle is exposed, we take our pictures to see if there's any hemorrhaging. And then we take our scalpel up like under the jawline. I almost said under your jawline. We're not doing this to you. (laughs) You're doing this to a random unnamed imaginary cadaver. We cut through the muscles that are superior to the hyoid bone now so that we can basically reach our hand in and remove the tongue and the whole neck block. That's a super graphic description of what we do, but it's actually like my favorite part. I was just going to say, it's very satisfying cutting away layer by layer. You, It's very, it's probably one of the more delicate parts. Yes, because each layer is so thin mm-hmm. and you have like they're... They're layer by layer, so there's, like, the fascial plane in between, and every layer is so thin and just, like, stacked on top of each other, so you have to use, like, the very tip of your scalpel, and it's very delicate. Yeah, and it's it's a skill. It takes it takes practice. Like, it took me a while to get good at it. Yeah. And I'm now I can do it very easily, but it's still, like, it's just, like, it's so satisfying once you get it right. Anatomy is so cool, guys. So back in the show, a tech comes in and says that there was a fast turnaround time with the samples at the lab, and there was no leukotriene B4 detected in the tissue around the wound from the pole. So leukotriene B4 is a pro-inflammatory mediator synthesized in myeloid cells from arachidonic acid. So basically, in layman's terms, there was no inflammation around the wound, which means that there was no blood circulating at the time it occurred. So this impalement was post-mortem or after death and not the cause of death. So this explains the lack of blood at the scene. So he hit the pole after his heart has stopped pumping any blood. So everything seems to be lining up with the story of Blake being strangled before he was thrown from the bridge. But something is still bothering Jenny. She says that she saw a shadow in the esophagus in the x-ray. She shows the team the image on the x-ray and 
The other doc suggests that they dissect the trachea to take a closer look. And I wasn't sure if this would be a possible red flag. Like, because he says, at first they say esophagus and then they change it. Seems like they don't know their anatomy. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was like, <laughs> these docs. <laughs> also, like, where they point on the x ray, I was having a hard time if they meant, like, trachea or esophagus. Yeah, it was hard to see. And I know it, like, separates out eventually, but I was, it was difficult to see. So I was like, iffy on that, their, their language used, but they end up taking out the esophagus and Jenny feels something inside there. She pulls out a necklace with a moonstone on it. And Jenny says she saw this on a case that she's worked before. So she pulls the case file from an earlier case that explains that this victim had bled out from a self-inflicted wound where he cut his femoral artery, carving the word evolved into his leg. The body was found with a moonstone pendant around the neck. They also found another victim who allegedly shot himself in a park and was found wearing a moonstone ring. He had also been found with a piece of paper in his hand that had something written on it in Farsi. It said, Degarguni, which means to grow or to transform. Wasn't that the name of one of the other episodes we were going to watch? So they, it ha- they're tying in an older case, I guess. At the end of this episode, it's a to be continued, Into this, Like I know they're tying in an older case, but it's an older case that the audience has seen. It's not just oh, like... maybe we'll have to go watch that one. Degarguni is, season- is two episodes before this. I knew it sounded familiar, and I was like, wait, did we did we talk about watching this one? So they think that all these cases are more than just coincidences. They're all apparent suicides, all had moonstones, and all had messages or something about evolving. So we've, we didn't mention this earlier. Blake had said in his interview with Rohan that he wanted to, quote, evolve from his trauma, and he, like, used that kind of language a lot. But Jenny does, she stands by her original ruling that the first two victims did die from self-inflicted injuries, but she's very sure that Blake was murdered. He was, his injuries don't look self-inflicted. So Rohan's alibi ends up checking out, but he sends them some additional footage from his interview with Blake that is troubling. Blake keeps saying Rohan sounds like, quote, them, but won't tell Rohan who them is. He then speaks off camera to the woman and says that he won't say anything about Legend, who is the leader of a wellness group that the detective and his girlfriend are a part of that we saw earlier. He then signs something. He like uses sign language with the woman who comes over into view and we see that it's the detective's fitness instructor from earlier in the episode. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. Nobody else knows this. So the detective just leaves and he says he just has to get some air, but he doesn't mention that he knows this woman and is part of this group. Jenny's assistant finds out that the Moonstone jewelry is from the wellness slash fitness group Surmount Wellness, and Jenny recognizes this as the detective's wellness group and tries to get in touch with him, but it just goes to voicemail because he went to go meet his girlfriend, who is also in the group, and he asks if she knows someone named Blake Zellick. And she's like, yeah, I do. He was high up in the ranks at Surmount. And I used to see him a lot in classes, but I haven't seen him in a while. And the detective's like, well, that's because he's dead. And she doesn't seem shocked. She says that that's terrible, but that, quote, it never gets easier to lose one of our group. She says that she knows their group is a worldwide community of trauma survivors, which means that their members are vulnerable. The detective asks if there have been other deaths in the group, but he gets interrupted because his girlfriend's phone goes off, telling her that she was selected by legend to go to the retreat this weekend. The detective tries to talk her out of going for obvious reasons, but she says she needs surmount. 
However, it looks like he convinces her to stay and spend the weekend with him, and it looks like they're all fine. And another detective goes to Blake's apartment, and he looks around, and he sees medals and trophies everywhere, and pictures of her with Blake, and also pictures with her with Detective McAvoy and his girlfriend. Jenny calls the detective right at that moment and tells him that she knows that Detective McAvoy is part of this wellness group, and they agree they need to find him ASAP. And then we cut to Detective McAvoy parking in his garage after dropping off his girlfriend. And he gets a text from said girlfriend saying that she's decided to go to the retreat this weekend and that she'll make it up to him next weekend. We then see her get into a car with the woman that Blake knew and she signs a contract of some kind before getting in the car. And then we're hit with a big old to be continued. So obviously this wellness group is kind of sketchy. It seems like a cult. <laughs> Doesn't seem great. I think that you should do more research into this, into like support groups or wellness groups, just to double check that it's not a secret cult. Yeah. Well, I mean, the girlfriend was right. Like they definitely target vulnerable people who are just looking for a support group. Mm-hmm. I don't know what her specific trauma is. I know she mentioned briefly so i think her and the detective had been married at some point because she mentions being like an ex-wife but now they're like trying to get back together and so i don't know if there was some trauma there with something that he saw or that they both saw or something with his work like brought them apart but now they're working on bringing them together because she says that's why she needs surmount she's like we wouldn't even be back together if it wasn't for surmount I'm like, oh. yeah that's so unfortunate. It reminds me of, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to, I won't say the name of the fitness thing that I went to when I was in college, but someone I was dating at the time, not my current, not my fiance, before I met him, convinced me to go to this like fitness thing. And it was a well-known fitness thing. Jess, I'll tell you after, because I don't want to get in trouble for like bashing on this thing. Cause, but it was like a group, it was like a huge group of people and I was just there, just there, not really knowing much about this. And the fitness instructor, who was like a celebrity to these people, was on the stage. And he would do, he would say something and the entire crowd would cha- would know like what to chant back, oh. except for me. And I'm like, I feel like I am in a cult meeting right now. <laughs> it wasn't as extreme as the one in the show, but I was like, I feel very uncomfortable. Were there different tiers of, of fitness? No, (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I never returned to it after, and I'm clearly no longer dating that person. (laughs) But I, I thought of it during this episode. I'm glad you're out of that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad I didn't (laughs) stick with that. So obviously, the most intriguing aspect of this episode was the supposed cult that was disguised as a wellness and, and empowerment group. That made us think of something that has made very recent headlines in the last few years, the Nexium cult. So Nexium was run by a now-imprisoned racketeering and sex offender Keith Rainier, and Nexium was also the name of the defunct corporation that Rainier founded that would give seminars of human potential development that really served as a front for criminal activities by Rainier and other associates within this group. I feel like that's such... That's such a tactic. Like, that's such a vague 
description of a seminar oh yeah like human potential development like that could be anything i at first i thought that was like very yeah it's like very militaristic it's like vague you don't know what it is really but it seems a little weird i don't know that's such like i feel like that's like a thing that cults will do they'll be like oh we're all about this human potential development and people are like oh i want to learn more and then the cults for you The Nexium Corporation was based in the New York Capital District, but had centers all throughout the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Subsidiary companies of Nexium would recruit based on multi-level marketing model and provide courses that would attract several notable students, including actors as well as children from wealthy and powerful families. Nexium started in 1998 and was founded by Rainier and Nancy Salzman. They called it a personal development company that would offer executive success programs, or ESPs, and other techniques for self-improvement. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I I feel like that's such another, like, another thing. Like, the fact that they attracted, like, notable students that were, like, actors and, like, well-known people. Because then, like, everyday people would be like, well, it can't be that bad. This actress is in it. This big-time actor's doing it. This president's daughter is in it. And, like, it can't be bad. Like, it must be fine if all of these, like, smart, powerful people are in it. And that's very smart on the cult's end. Because then that attracts more and more people for them. Because then you have all these celebrities telling you, like, no, I... I do it and look at me I'm beautiful and rich and fabulous and it's like you're beautiful rich and fabulous because you had money before you joined this scheme mm-hmm. and you can pay people to make you beautiful fabulous and you have a whole team of stylists <laughs> so Rainier claimed that his goal was to allow people to experience more joy in their lives during lectures students were instructed to call Rainier and Salzman vanguard and prefect which are also weird. I don't know what I would do if I, like, went... Because, like, this seems like... I don't want to say something that I would fall for, but maybe. Like, if someone's like, hey, do you want to go to this, like, human development, like, potential development? Like, it can empower you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all about empowerment. And, like, I show up and this guy's like, okay, but you have to call me Vanguard and you have to call this person Prefect. <laughs> I'm like, are those your real names? Are, the- <laughs> are those... I don't know about this. <laughs> I That's the part I think I would start to question it. Mm-hmm. But it's reported that Rainier took the name Vanguard from a video game with the same name from 1981. In this game, the destruction of one's enemies increased one's own power. He told people that the reason for the titles was that he was the founder and Salzman was his first student. By 2003, 3,700 people had attended ESP classes in Nexium. Nexium claimed that its training was a trade secret, which made them subject to a non-disclosure agreement, but they reportedly used a technique called rational inquiry in order to facilitate personal and professional development. That's another... I'm sorry, I'm just flagging all these red flags. Telling people like, okay, but everything we're going to talk about is a secret. You can't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone outside yeah. of this lecture. But the thing is, they're so sneaky with it. And they probably used all this different type of jargon. Like, I definitely could have fallen for like are. this. Like, the, I I remember when the whole Nexium thing was exposed. I'm from New York. So, like, it was a whole thing because it was, like, in New York. And... Yeah, I remember like reading about it and I listened to a podcast about it and it was so scary this like cuz they like they were smart people who just like it just spiraled cuz these people were so sneaky and so gross with their language and it's like And then they get in your head and then people start believing it because they don't have anything else to believe in and they want to believe in mm-hmm. this empowerment 
for themselves so badly. Yeah. And I think you're going to get into it later, but they ended up like blackmailing people too. So when people did realize they needed to get out, they couldn't because this person was Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, if you try to leave, I'm going to expose you for this, this, and this. And it's like, it's, it's scary. It's scary. So in 2003, Nexium sued the Ross Institute in alleged copyright infringement for publishing excerpts of contents of its manual in three critical articles commissioned by Colt investigator Rick Allen Ross, which were also posted on his website. Ross also posted a psychiatrist evaluation of the secret Nexium manual. The psychiatrist called it expensive brainwashing. There were way more controversies and allegations of cult activities throughout the years, but the exposure and downfall of Nexium really hit in June of 2017, starting with the reports by Frank Parlato and supported by an October 2017 article in the New York Times. Details began to surface about a secret society of women within Nexium that were called DOS. DOS. So DOS started to, started in 2015, and allegedly female members were called slaves and branded with the initials Rainier and Allison Mack, which was an actress from Smallville who became a higher up in the cult. So famous people. And I saw famous people. And so before people are like, why would they brand themselves with his initials? They, one, there's a horrifying interview with someone who had this happen to them talking about how she was blindfolded and didn't know what was going on. But also they made it so it wasn't very obviously his initials. It looked like some kind of weird design. And they're like, oh, we're all sisters. We're going to get these like matching tattoos. And they didn't know it was like a brand. It's insane. It's so scary. It's horrifying. Yeah. So the women in DOS were also subject to corporal punishment by their masters and were required to provide nude photos and other potentially damaging information about themselves as collateral. Law enforcement officials have also alleged that DOS members were forced into sexual slavery. Sarah Edmondson, a Canadian actress who had also been an ESP participant since 2005, said that she had left Nexium after Allison Mack had, in- had inducted her into DOS at her Albany home. Edmondson claims that the participants were blindfolded, naked, and held down by Mack and three other women and branded by Nexium-affiliated doctor Danielle Roberts. Edmondson said that the collateral was used in innocuous forms from the earliest stages of Nexium in order to acclimate victims. An example being having to pay a small amount of money if you miss the gym for a day. Oh my god, that's so like, they start like as soon as you're in, they'll be like, starts like that, and then they disguise it as like, we're just trying to hold you accountable. If you don't do this thing, you have to give me $5. And then it like slowly escalates. But yeah, she'd been in it since she'd been in it for like 13 to 15 Mm -hmm. years. And so they must have just like slowly built it up over time, is what she said. That's crazy. The New York Times reported that hundreds of Nexium members left the group after Edmondson went public with her experience. In March of 2018, Rainier was arrested and indicted on charges related to DOS, including sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. He was arrested in Mexico and held in custody in New York after appearing in federal court in Fort Worth, Texas. The indictment alleged that at least one woman was coerced into sex with a Rainier and that he forced DOS members to be branded. 
State's attorney Richard Donahue stated that Rainier created a secret society of women whom he had sex with and branded with his initials, coercing them with the threat of releasing their highly personal information and taking their assets. In April 2018, Allison Mack was indicted on charges similar to Rainier. Mack was allegedly paid by Rainier to recruit women to DOS and coerce them into sex with Rainier. She was also allegedly DOS's second-in-command. She was released on $5 million bond, pending trial, and held under house arrest with her parents in California. Rainier pleaded not guilty. Nancy Salzman's home was raided shortly after Rainier was arrested, and in May 2018, authorities seized two Nexium-owned properties near Albany, New York. It was later reported that Nexium moved to Brooklyn, and it was led by Claire Brofman. On June 12, 2018, the Times Union reported that Nexium had suspended operations and Brofman was arrested on July 24th and charged with racketeering. On March 13, 2019, Nancy Salzman pleaded guilty to a charge of racketeering, a criminal conspiracy. On the same day, the court released a previously sealed document that superseded indictment on Rainier and his co-defendants. This added to the charge against Rainier that he produced and kept child sexual abuse material of a girl who was 15 at the time. And on April 8, 2019, Allison Mack pleaded guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. She had provided relevant emails, documents, and recordings that were used to convict Rainier. The federal trial of Keith Rainier began on May 7, 2019, and on June 19th of that year, a jury convicted him in all accounts. That's a lot to take in. And this is just like scratching the surface. Like from the time that they started really making progress in the early 2000s to like 2017, there were like people trying to call out the fact that they were a cult the entire time. And then it really, I don't, in 2017, it really ramped up. And it's insane. That's just so insane to think about. Like these poor people didn't know what they were getting into. And now they're in too deep. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he had like collateral on all of them. He had everything against them. Yeah. And it's insane. It's horrifying. And I highly recommend the podcast Escaping Nexium, which I believe has, Sarah Edmondson is a huge part. Like she's interviewed a lot or it's like a lot of her story because I think she ran into, I forget the man who does the podcast, but like I think he knew her before and he hadn't seen her in a while and they ran into each other and he's like, what's new with you? And she's like, well, I just got out of a cult. And he's like, what? <laughs> and yeah, I listened to that and that's when I got a lot of details about like like when I first learned about all of this about like DOS and the secret society and the branding and it's horrible horrifying truly insane there's so many I'm sure there's more and more details that are coming to light now that we didn't know about Mm -hmm. because there's also a docuseries I think it's called The Vow I haven't watched it it's a 2020 documentary there's two seasons of it on Netflix I don't think so HBO Okay. Yeah, it's just scary to think about how this can happen. Yeah, it for sure is. So, PSA. We said it before. Don't join a cult. Don't do it. But I, oh my God. We know it's not the victim's fault, though. Like, this is just, like, insane manipulation on a whole new level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
So to end this episode, we tallied a total of, I think we gave an extra green flag, so two green flags and one potential red flag still iffy on it. So in our opinion, coroner does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. And we do love the autopsy scenes that they had. I, I loved how they showed the morgue. I liked it a lot. I think they have some of the best ones. I agree. I always enjoy watching the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.